Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of A to Z of Detoxing, the ultimate guide to reducing our toxic exposures, and host of this Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. Welcome. This is a super important podcast. You will hear a very interesting and easy to understand conversation about how radiation from your cell phones, laptops, and other wireless technologies that are commonly found in households can affect your brain, health, and sperm. If you have children, then this is even more important for you to hear. But please don't be scared. You should find this very relevant and empowering. You will learn how to protect yourself through simple steps and also how you can help strengthen regulation so that we are all better protected. This is an important time to listen to this podcast, and I'll explain why shortly. My guest is Dr. Devra Davis, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist and public health warrior. She has an impressive history of pioneering science, public health, and more. For example, she was among the front runners to tackle tobacco, asbestos, the overuse of diagnostic radiation, and now the wireless radiation from our cell phones and other household products. She founded and is currently president of the Environmental Health Trust, a nonprofit scientific think tank that raises awareness to man-made health threats. In recent years, her attention has focused on the health hazards of exposures to man-made sources of electromagnetic radiation, especially those from wireless devices. Now, this is why you should listen to this podcast sooner rather than later. The Environmental Health Trust just filed a historic legal action in 2020 against the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, for the FCC's refusal to update its 24-year-old guidelines on cell phone and wireless radiofrequency radiation. The Environmental Health Trust is the lead plaintiff in the action and is joined by other scientists, consumer health nonprofits, and citizens. The plaintiff contends that these failures ignore peer-reviewed scientific studies showing that radiation from cell phones and cell phone towers and transmitters is associated with severe health effects in humans, including cancer, DNA damage, damage to the reproductive organs, and brain damage, including memory problems. In an article published on the website www.lawandcrime.com, Dr. Davis is quoted as saying this, The FCC has for years failed to protect public health by relying on 24-year-old safety tests designed when phones were the size of a shoe and used by a few. We file this appeal in order to insist that the agency take full measure of the U.S. government and other scientific evidence that cell phone radiation can be harmful. The agency has dismissed hundreds of scientific studies submitted to its inquiry on wireless radiation and the advice of the American Academy of Pediatrics and others without providing any rationale for doing so. She continues to explain, Unlike France and Israel, many Americans are ignorant of the fact that phones are two-way microwave radios that are tested while held inches away from the body. Safety advice is also hidden within operating systems about keeping devices away from the abdomen of pregnant women or children. Just like cars in the 1970s, we need the equivalent of airbags and seatbelts that have saved millions of lives. 
to ensure hardware and software operate at the lowest feasible levels and protect billions of children and others using wireless radiating devices that comply with outmoded standards. The executive director of the Environmental Health Trust, Theodora Scarato, told Law and Crime, the FCC is ignoring the recommendation of our nation's largest organization of children's doctors, the American Academy of Pediatrics, noting that the physician-led group asked the FCC to test phones the way we use them, in positions against the body, and the FCC said it was unnecessary. So who is Dr. Deborah Davis? Deborah Davis is a world-renowned epidemiologist and writer who has specialized in disease prevention and environmental health factors. She has such a long list of impressive accomplishments that I struggle with how to describe her credentials. But given that the risks of cell phone and other wireless radiation may be new to you and difficult to believe, and given that Dr. Davis is spearheading this historic lawsuit against the FCC, I'm going to take time to try to provide you with enough context so that you will listen to hear her with less doubt. Dr. Davis has an award-winning career that has spanned academia, public policy, and public service. I'll highlight some things in five categories. It will sound long, but it is abbreviated. She's just done a lot for us. First, she has an established track record of groundbreaking work both in and outside of government. For example, she was founding director of the Center for Environmental Oncology, the first of its kind in the world. Dr. Davis also was the founding director of the Board on Environmental Studies and Toxicology of the U.S. National Research Council, National Academy of Sciences, and the only woman to serve as scholar in residence. At the National Academy of Sciences, she helped efforts to remove tobacco smoke from airplanes and the environments of young children. President Clinton appointed the Honorable Dr. Davis to the then newly established Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, an independent executive branch agency that investigates, prevents, and mitigates chemical accidents. As the former senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services, she has counseled leading officials in the United States, United Nations, European Environment Agency, Pan American Health Organization, World Health Organization, and World Bank, and served as a member of the Board of Scientific Counselors of the U.S. National Toxicology Program and various advisory committees to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Honored for her research and public policy work by various national and international groups, she has been a fellow of both the American Colleges of Toxicology and of Epidemiology. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations Climate Convention tapped her to serve as a lead author on their assessment of climate mitigation policies, and as a member of this panel, she was among the team of scientists awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 with the Honorable Al Gore. Second, Dr. Davis has been a prolific and esteemed scientific author. She's authored more than 200 publications in books and journals that include the prestigious Lancet, one of the world's best-known medical journals, and the journal of the American Medical Association, the New York Times, and many more. Dr. Davis's work has appeared in more than a dozen languages. 
Third, Dr. Davis has authored three popular books for the public. She won a National Book Award finalist for her book, When Smoke Ran Like Water, Tales of Environmental Deception and the Battle Against Pollution. Her book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, was a top pick by Newsweek that influenced national cancer policy by the Cancer Association of South Africa and is being used at major schools of public health, including at Harvard, Emory, and Tulane University. Her most recent book, Disconnect, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation, What the Industry is Doing to Hide It, and How to Protect Your Family, was selected by Time Magazine as a top pick in 2010, received the silver medal from Nautilus Books for Courageous Investigation. It is the subject of international policymaking. For example, it forms the foundation for policy changes in Canada, Israel, and elsewhere. Fourth, Dr. Davis lectures at universities around the world. A short list include Dartmouth, Georgetown, Harvard, and more major universities in the U.S., Israel, Europe, India, Australia, and elsewhere. And five, she has won numerous awards. For example, Dr. Davis was honored by the Betty Ford Comprehensive Cancer Center and the American Cancer Society with the Breast Cancer Awareness Award. She was commended by the director of the National Cancer Institute for Outstanding Service and appointed a global environmental advisor to Newsweek magazine. She was a recipient of Women's Leadership Exchange Compass Award presented by OPEN, the small business network from American Express, for breaking the paradigms of how women are perceived. Dr. Davis also received the first Lisa Jong Environmental Award from the United Nations in July 2008. In July 2009, Dr. Davis received the Artemis Award presented by the Euro-American Women's Council and the Greek Foreign Ministry in recognition of her outstanding contributions to science and public health policy. Regarding the Environmental Health Trust lawsuit against the FCC, while the backstory is complicated, one milestone is in 2012 when the General Accountability Office recommended in a report that wireless radiation regulations be reassessed. This led the FCC in 2013 to ask for public comment on whether a review is needed. The FCC accepted submissions for years and took no action until December 4, 2019, when it decided that no review needed to be done and that wireless radiation limits were protective. In response to that, Dr. Davis is quoted as saying, The FCC decision flies in the face of mounting scientific evidence demonstrating harm from radiofrequency radiation and runs counter to the science-based decisions of other governments that have devoted major resources to evaluating new evidence on the issue and have taken steps to curtail exposures as a result of their findings. Dr. Davis testified in the 2009 U.S. Senate hearing on the health effects of cell phone radiation, and the Environmental Health Trust Chairman, Dr. Ronald Herberman, founder of the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, testified in the 2008 House hearings on cell phone radiation. We have a unique opportunity to demand stronger protections from our technologies. A lot has changed over the past 24 years, so we really need updated regulation. After learning more about Dr. Davis, I hope that you are as grateful as I am about her legal pressure on the FCC. 
As you can tell, she's uniquely qualified to take this on. To learn how this lawsuit unfolds, how you can help, and for podcast show notes, register for my email newsletter by texting the word DETOX, spelled D-E-T-O-X, to the number 66866. What follows is a really good conversation about what you should know about wireless radiation from what you buy and do, and the simple ways you can reduce your wireless radiation exposures to take care of the brains, eyes, bodies, and reproductive health of you and your loved ones. Dr. Davis and I end our conversation with talking about resiliency. She says, the human body is a wonderful thing. We have lots of ways to repair damage. Whatever damage people have had from EMFs can often be repaired. There's a lot we can do to restore our health. For children though, we wanna prevent their harm. Remember that I have an online workshop called EMF Detox, which details with checklists and short videos the easy ways you can reduce exposures to the electromagnetic fields from what you buy and do. You can learn more on my website at www.nontoxicliving.tips or just register for my newsletter. Access to EMF Detox will become even more affordable soon when the monthly membership reopens, which happens just a few times a year. So check that out if you want more support in detoxing your EMFs, including wireless radiation. Now, on with the show. So I, I'd love to talk to you first about the complexity of human development and diseases. And as we talk through some key issues that will help listeners understand the nuances that matter when they hear about new studies on the health risks from EMFs. As we go through the key issues, it would be great if you could talk more about specific studies that we have on EMFs. So to begin with, there's this idea that we each have unique vulnerabilities not just genetically, but by age. So could you talk about how like prenatal exposures or early life exposures is very different than an adult male being exposed to cell phone radiation? Certainly. There's a reason why we take so many special precautions to protect babies and to protect uh, in utero growth. And that is because the faster cells grow, the more vulnerable they are. And the fastest growing cells in the human are the brain of the newborn, which grows uh, so many times from a few cells at conception to over a hundred billion at birth, and then doubles again in the next two years of life. The brain is one of the fastest growing cells in the body and you have to protect it. Babies obviously are going through growth spurts throughout their lives. And when things are growing fast, they are more vulnerable. So for the male, the most vulnerable cells are sperm because sperm also uh, develop quickly and rapidly. And uh, a healthy male requires up to a half a billion sperm to make one healthy baby because you want the healthiest sperm to survive. And for babies and for young children, not only do you have faster growth, their skulls are thinner they contain more fluid and the thin bone allows more radiation to get through it. So those are some of the reasons why we have to protect children more and why they are more vulnerable. If they do grow faster, they have thinner skulls with more fluid in them. 
And so I've read that studies on the health risks from cell phone radiation have been done on an adult man. Is that right? Could you speak more to that? Um, so far, all of the studies that have been published on brain cancer, for example, with one exception, look at people who are adults when they may develop the disease. There is only one study that's being done now on children in Europe, and it's been delayed from publication, which is unfortunately the case with many of these kinds of projects. But we have not studied children and the effects of cell phone radiation on them. We have not. What we have done, my colleagues and I in Brazil, Claudio Fernandes and Alvaro de Salas, have published a series of modeling where we look at the brain of the six-year-old and the three-year-old and we show how much more absorption gets into the brain of the young child than into the adults be done, uh, except on the adult male. And as a consequence, we really don't know what the risk is to children. I'd love to talk more about the blood-brain barrier. I've been trying to understand more about when it's fully developed. I've read conflicting things. Maybe it's not fully understood. But I've also read that cell phone radiation and other radiation along the electromagnetic spectrum can weaken the blood-brain barrier, making it more vulnerable to toxic compounds. That is correct. The blood-brain barrier is designed to protect the brain from being exposed to toxic agents in the body. That's its job. There's also a barrier for the testis, by the way. And these barriers have the, have the, the job of keeping bad things out of the brain or the testis. Now, cell phone radiation has been demonstrated in experimental studies to weaken that barrier. And that means it can allow toxic materials to get into the brain. And when the blood-brain barrier is mature, well, it matures a little bit later in males than females, but it matures uh, later in life so that it's more vulnerable throughout the developing period of the child's life. Interestingly, there are some types of treatment in cancer that re rely on the fact that you can weaken the blood-brain barrier in order to deliver to chemotherapy agents into the brain of people who have brain cancer. So then once the blood-brain barrier is weakened, either intentionally for cancer treatment or unintentionally through our everyday devices, can it repair and restore itself? That's one of the wonderful things about <clears throat> human beings. We have great repair processes. We have DNA repair for all sorts of things. But the answer to your question is, we don't know. And the reason we don't know a lot more than we should right now is because research programs on the field <clears throat> of biotics have been cut repeatedly. When the government uh, had a program of research, that was done at the EPA and was producing some very important results led by Carl Blackman and others. As soon as those results began to show positive effects of electromagnetic radiation on the chick embryo in, in particular, Congress wiped out the funding. Why do you think that is? We don't have, an, I believe it's because if you don't wanna know, you don't ask. And failure to do this research has meant that people have assumed that because there's not proof of harm, it's evidence of safety. And the absence of proof of harm is not evidence of safety. 
Right, we have a long track record of that with many different kinds of exposures. Um, I would love to talk through the electromagnetic spectrum because I think, I think it's helpful to understand that we live in a sea of, of different kinds of radiation that, we've, that are unprecedented. And if you could talk right. a bit about what we know about 3G, 4G, 5G, the different kinds of effects because of the different waves, I think that would be really helpful for the public to understand. G stands for generation for technology. 2G and 3G were the technologies that most of us have been relying on. And 4G is the more recent one. With each step up, there's been an increase in speed and, and access. Um, but the research that's been done on the damaging effect of microwave radiation that comes from your cell phone. That research has been done on 2G and 3G by the National Toxicology Program in the United States and the Ramazzini Institute in Italy. Those are the two largest and most important animal studies, but those studies are not alone and they are not unique. There are by now thousands of studies in cell cultures taking cells of humans or animals, exposing them in the laboratory to <clears throat> computer-generated versions of cell phone radiation and showing that 2G and 3G can damage genes, can weaken membranes, can increase the production of biochemicals in the bloodstream that we know predict the risk of cancer and degenerative diseases. Now, 5G doesn't actually exist except in a very few areas right now. In order for 5G to work, we will need more than a million new antennas in the United States alone. 5G is only being planned for dense urban areas because it requires an antenna every 100 yards or so. At this point, we are conducting a massive experiment closely connectable antennas that work with a massive MIMO system that is multiplex in and out. Simultaneously, a thousand antennas can send and receive signals at the same time. It's kind of like a super highway. Right now with 4G, we have a highway, let's say it's four miles long and about four lanes wide. With 5G, we will have a highway that is about 40 lanes wide and about half a mile long. So it doesn't go as far, it goes faster. And it's the speed and the reduction of latency that is so attractive for a number of industrial and medical uses. Now my thinking is that rather than blanket our cities with 5G, which is what we are poised to do right now, we should rethink it because 5G requires a fiber optic cable, which is a complex cable, almost as thick as my arm, with multiple wires in it that send signals through it. And it's the last part of the backbone, this signal is now being proposed to be wireless. But you could wire 5G into the home and through the home. And you could make it available to those who need it, like the police, the fire, the military, where speed is clearly of great importance for security, as well as to businesses and hospitals. 
but you can do it by wiring it to those facilities and wiring it to and through them. Now that would require though, that you not, you not insist that whenever you have it wired in, you then put it connected to a wireless router because that would be the purpose. It's the wireless radiation that 5G will require as it's currently configured that poses huge threats to public health and safety. And we know that because the same research I referred to in animals has been done in cell cultures with millimeter waves for several years. And we know that millimeter waves can damage the eye. We know that millimeter waves can accelerate the growth of bacteria and viruses and potentially cancer cells. Why would we make that exposure ubiquitous throughout our cities since we already know it has biological impacts? So that is why we are calling for a moratorium on wireless 5G until it can be configured to be wired to and through these needed. How confident are you that we could have that moratorium? Not at all. It will only happen if more and more people become concerned and say, look, I don't want my family and to become guinea pigs in an experiment that has no controls. So how many people do you need to achieve enough to stop that, to stop 5G? And do I have right any now. rights as do I have any rights to protect my home and my children? Yeah, that's a very good question. Right now in Congress, there are a number of congressional representatives who are expressing concern about this. Anna Eshoo is one of them. Senator Richard Blumenthal is another. We need to write to our Congress people now and get them to understand that people do not want to be exposed to this untested radiation. We need to do a better job as a scientist of communicating that there are risks to wildlife. There are risks to pollinating insects. There are risks as well to migrating animals. And if we do a better job of communicating that, then I think that the public will understand and the policymakers will understand that this is a bad bargain that we're setting out for. So what I would like listeners to understand is you're gonna hear conf conflicting opinions on 5G and whether it's really a threat, but really the main point is that since, I don't know, over the past couple decades, the iPhone only came out in 1997, I, or no, 2007, I think. But in a short yeah, amount of about time, Right. And so in a relatively short amount of time, there have been many layers of radiation infused, imposed into our homes, our schools, and our exposures are 24-7. And so these effects, the different waves of radiation have different effects, correct? In the beginning, we thought we, it should only be a concern if there were thermal effects. And then later, we realized, oh, actually, non-thermal effects are of concern. And I've heard you talk about the pulsating nature of the cellular signal. If you could talk more about that, I think that would be helpful for people to hear. All right. Well, let me say that um, the frequencies of electromagnetic fields are measured by how fast they go. Okay. So uh, 2G and 3G was about 900 million cycles a second. Um, 4G is about 
2.4 to maybe up to 5 billion cycles a second. 5G is going to be supposedly 6 billion cycles a second, but there's a little trick. For 5G to work, it will also need 4G and 3G to communicate with all these other devices. And that means you're going to take these antennas and you're going to put signals in them that had previously been on mountaintops, far away for the most, for the most case, and bring them right to your bedroom window. So you'll have 3G, 4G, and 5G together. So when you say, they talk about the 5G uh, antennas, they're going to have to use 4G. There's no question about it. And by the way, there are no plans for a 5G voice phone. There are only 4G voice phones that are on the drawing table right now. So the 5G phone, its big, big selling point is you can download a movie to your phone in a few seconds. I want to protect my eyes, especially my my age. I don't want to watch a movie on my phone. I would never think of doing that. I'd like to watch movies in theaters, frankly. Um, but if I want to watch it, I'm going to watch it on a wired device like the one I'm speaking to you on right now. And I'm not interested in having my coffee pot talk to my refrigerator, my washing machine, or God forbid, my grandchild's wireless diaper. I think these are, from my point of view, I don't need these things and I don't want them. And I don't want them imposed on me. We recently got a new washing machine and I disabled the wireless part so that my phone could have talked to my um, washing machine and my dryer. There's no reason for that. And it, this, we are living in an age of what I call the technological imperative, which means because you can do something, we must do it. But that's not the right way to think ethically. Even though we can do things, sometimes they're wrong. And I think we need to re re-examine what we're doing with a lot of wireless technology. Do we need a wireless vaginal speaker that can play music to an unborn baby? Do we need a wireless diaper that can tell somebody when to change the diaper? Do we need a wireless bassinet that will rock the baby at night and play mommy's voice so mommy doesn't have to get up at night? Look, mothers and, and fathers have been getting up at night with children for centuries. And that there's a reason for it. It's part of the bonding experience for everybody. And a lot of what we're doing with these devices is actually taking us away from our humanity, taking us away from the, what it really means to be a human being. And that is why the progress of technology is dazzling. It's wonderful. And I'm a big user and a big fan. But I think we have to start to question the reasons why we're doing so much of these things and start to ask questions about what we're giving up in the process. Not only when you log on, if you do, to Face app, which I will not, are you, you're giving up your privacy, you're giving up the right to all your photos, you're giving up the right to every IP address you've ever gone to. Uh, Facebook just got a $5 billion fine because they, were, they misled people and asked for phone numbers and use them again to sell things. I mean, they're masterful at selling things, but they really have been very deceitful at what they do with our private information. And I think that it's time for a reset when it comes to the way we are using technology today. We have to take a moment and ask, what is it we're trying to do for our children and for ourselves? Do we really want to have dinner times and family times uh, plagued by digital devices so you can't get a child to look at you because they're so addicted to the screen, which does 
stimulates dopamine in the brain of everyone, but particularly the young child. Dopamine is kind of like crack. It's a very pleasant feeling you get when you get dopamine in your brain, but you don't want a child to become addicted to that at a young age. And then you, as a parent, lose control of your capacity to interact with them or even to have a child look you in the eye, which is how they learn uh, to, to acquire empathy. Could you comment on how early life exposures to digital screens affect empathy and, and development of the nervous system and brain development? There's actually been a very important research project that came out of Switzerland where they looked at young teens, middle schoolers, and found that those who used their devices the most had deficits in memory, in figural memory. So they documented a decline in memory in children. So that's a brain, that's a brain effect. There's also been studies that have shown that you can get, um, if you do functional MRI of kids who are addicted and there are uh, to the internet, which in Korea and China, they have internet addiction camps. Functional MRIs of those brains show a lack of development of the part of the brain involved in empathy and an overdevelopment of the part of the brain involved in fast responses. And it's, it's really become so bad that the Korean psychiatrists have diagnosed in children digital dementia, which they attribute to the early frequent use of screens. When children look at screens instead of looking at you, they are not developing uh, the ability to think of the other as a, as a person. And there's even some thinking that handwriting, the ability to take a crayon with stubby fingers and draw an O and draw things, helps to develop uh, not only eye-hand coordination, but the ability to anticipate the other that there is something else out there. And that when we rob children of learning handwriting, we're robbing them of an important step in their development toward empathy as well. We want our children to learn how to play together. We don't want them to learn how to play games remotely online with some, um, some entity that they don't even have a relationship with. Would you talk about the fact that there are natural electromagnetic fields, human beings have their own, the earth has one, and how does the man-made electromagnetic fields disrupt ours and how, and, and the importance of us connecting like, hu like, like mother and child connecting like without technology and connecting with the earth. There, there, um, there are thoughts out there that that skin contact on the earth will help rebalance your EMFs. Do you, do you think the science, do, does that make sense as a scientist? Well, there, there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I think it's well said. Let me just start with this. Speaking of skin, when babies are born, now in most uh, well baby centers, they put the baby directly on the mother's skin. And a skin-to-skin -skin contact is thought to be critical in those first months and years of life to creating a sense of comfort and relationship. And when you give a three-month-old or a six-month-old an iPad, you can get them to swipe. And people think it's quite amusing. Children, infants can swipe before they can talk. 
before they can sit up. But it doesn't help their brain because their brain is not developing that interaction with the parent, with the skin of the parent. They're developing it with the uh, artificial uh, existence of, of the screen. Now, humans have evolved over millions of years of hominid evolution in an environment that did include microwave radiation and electromagnetic fields. After all, the sun is a form of um, electromagnetic radiation. But the levels to which we are exposed now that are created by the artificial world have never existed in human history. They are unprecedented. Even in the past four years, the amount of microwave radiation that we're now exposed to from so many different things has more than quintupled in four years. We now have more than 7 billion cell phones, and it's thought that the Internet of Things might have 50 billion devices within another decade, and all of them are planned to be wireless. Now, I believe that mobile connections can be important, and they should, they should continue to use the technology that we have used, but I am not convinced that 5G will ever become the basis for a telephone voice connection, and it should be restricted to the military, medical, and other applications uh, that are, I think, appropriate for such, for such high speeds. But recognize that we are now in a sea of radio frequency radiation that has never existed in human history, and it's never been fully evaluated for its effects on us. You know, people are very interested, of course, in genes. Um, but you know what we know from the National Cancer Institute? Only one in 10 cases, or maybe one in 20 cases, of most cancer comes about from inheriting a defect from your parents. That means that 19 out of 20 cases of cancer come about from someone who has acquired the effect from interacting with their environment, where they were born, what they ate, what they were exposed to in the air and water, um, other agents of that sort. Those things interact with our genes and determine whether or not we get cancer. So while genes are very important for cancer because all cancer is genetic in the sense that it comes about when your healthy genes stop doing their job of snuffing out damage. But what we're seeing increasingly are patterns of cancer we cannot explain. Most recently I looked and the CDC has reported that the rate of rectal cancer in young adults has quadrupled in the past decade. Why do you, do you have theories as to why that might be? I do, and I'm writing a paper on that right now that I'll <clears throat> talk with you more about later, but I certainly do. I think that when something has changed that much in one decade, we've got to ask what's going on. Well, I always thought it was interesting to look at the, tr the health trends and statistics among children, among the pediatric population, because they generally don't smoke and they generally don't have as much stress. They don't have the lifestyle or environmental risk that adults create for themselves. Can you comment on what's been going on with the pediatric population? Well, the CDC again reported last year that there's been unexplained increases in cancer in, in children, including the fact that brain cancer now is more common than leukemia in children. Fortunately, childhood cancer is rare. 
but the kinds of cancers children are getting have changed and their rates have increased. And again, these are puzzles that we need to figure out the answer to, but our children are developing not only more forms of brain cancer, but unfortunately the rate of autism has continued to increase and we do not really understand why. Would you talk about uh, your thoughts on baby monitors, which are so popular, the wireless baby monitors? Right. If you need a baby monitor, wire it. And if you can't wire it, then take it back and get another one. I think that wireless radiation generally is not a good idea. If, for, if your baby is critically ill and you must monitor and you don't have access to a wired monitor, then keep the monitor as far away from the child as you can. Certainly don't have it in the crib or right on the edge of it because we are concerned about that rapidly growing brain and body of the infant and we want to protect them at all costs. Would you explain, sometimes there are slices of the electromagnetic spectrum that are used for healing and like we talked earlier with cancer treatments. Um, infrared saunas, for example, are really popular and there are other types of uh, devices that use parts of the light spectrum for healing. So it, it can be confusing for the average person to understand what's really harmless and what is risky. Right. Well, it is complex, but in fact, the ability of an electromagnetic wave to damage is a function of its frequency and of its pulse. Now, infrared saunas have steady, continuous waves. They heat the skin. They cause the release of toxic agents. It's been demonstrated through some published studies that they do that. And they are a completely different cat than what you're dealing with with the cell phone, which is a two-way microwave radio that has four to six different frequencies that can operate at the same time for voice, for data, for photos, all at the same time, sending signals back and forth, and with a pulse signal that goes And that pulse, that irregular pulse, is what we believe is most biologically damaging. Thank you. Uh, I'd love to now talk more about some of the complexities of science. So historically, scientific studies examine one exposure at a time, right? But in real life, we're exposed to more burdens than ever. So uh, the, the electromagnetic spectrum we've talked about so far, anywhere from 2G to 5G and the toxic chemicals that are unprecedented as well. So can you comment on that and, and how the design of a study and even the funding, like who has funded the study, affects the outcome of the study? Well, there's a body of literature that, that would not surprise anyone that shows that results tend to be reflecting who's paying for them. And that's just a fact of life. Now, that doesn't mean that all science is corrupt, but it does mean that there's an influence on them. And we've seen that in, most notably in the drug research, where drug research tends to be sponsored by the manufacturers. It makes it very difficult to really get truly independent information. With respect to toxic chemicals, we have a real challenge. Science works best by studying one thing at a time under controlled conditions. We can take 
people, the example of a randomized controlled trial who have a heart disease and we can give some people drug X, other people get drug Y, some people, and other people get no drug. We match the people so they're comparable and we look at the results afterwards and then we can reasonably well conclude that if there is a difference in their outcome of heart disease, it's probably due to the fact that one group got one drug and one group got another drug. However, the real world is much more complicated than that. And it makes it very hard to study what's going on in the real world. We do not put people in cages, and at least anymore. We don't put them in cages to experiment on them. And we can't control the things people are exposed to in the natural world. So we're left with the field of epidemiology, which is observational, or uses what's called a controlled case control approach, where you can take people and match them. And you say, here are people with brain cancer, and we're going to match them in terms of age and sex and other experiences to people who don't have brain cancer. And we're going to ask them questions. How many head x-rays did you have? Um, where are you um, living? Um, what do you eat? Um, how much have you used a cell phone? How often have you held it next to your head? And when we do that case control study, we actually have results showing that those who begin to use cell phones before age 20, especially as young children, have four times more brain cancer by the time they reach adulthood. That's a pretty alarming finding in epidemiology, but still it's looking at people in the real world and there's, it's very difficult to get good data on real exposures. If I asked you, what did you eat 10 years ago? You might not remember. And it's hard for people to know uh, the, how to answer the question. So that is the challenge for science. We study things best one at a time, but the real world is quite complicated and intricate. Thank you. And would you talk about how in our history, different, uh, there have been consistent patterns applied by different industries to confuse the science and the public, and that's been an intentional strategy. And so when the public gets confused by different news reports, sometimes that is a result of an intentional strategy. Uh, so I first learned about it in some really wonderful reports by the environment, the European Environment Environmental Agency on big tobacco. And then I noticed those patterns in asbestos and chemical flame retardants, climate change, and in telecom, which I read about in your book, Disconnect. In my other book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, I document how the asbestos industry, the vinyl chloride industry, the benzene industry, and a whole bunch of others have deliberately misled the public and have bought science and manipulated science and attacked the scientists with findings that were inconvenient. And unfortunately, that's a pattern throughout history that's been well documented that I and a number of others have written about. Um, it's undeniably the case that um, where a person stands on an issue depends on where they sit and who bought their chair. Um, and that is just a fact of life. Yeah, I think those patterns are so helpful for the public to know about because then they'll start to see it in the news. Right, you're, you're correct. When you see results that say cell phones are safe, for example, look at who's saying it, where they're saying it from, 
Um, I've, I'm frankly been very disappointed in the New York Times, and I'm a huge fan of Bill Broad, the science reporter, but I think he's let us all down in what he's written recently about 5G in particular. Because, for example, he interviewed Marvin Ziskin and took Ziskin's statement out of context. According to Ziskin, Ziskin said that 5G doesn't go through the skin as much as 3G and 4G. That's true. But Ziskin did not say that the current 5G system was therefore going to be safe because it is, as I indicated, going to have to use 3G and 4G in order for it to work. Connect, to connect to all the other devices that we already have that are out there. And there were many aspects of his story that really didn't quite get it right. And I was shocked, but I was sufficiently dismayed that I've written about it in a post on Medium that I assume you will share with the people listening to this podcast. And I think that um, the New York Times has to do a little bit better, but there is this lingering question. Uh, one of their largest larger shareholders is Carlos Slim, who is one of the world's wealthiest men, has major wealth based on telecom. There are a number of members of their board that are closely tied to the telecom industry. Now, I don't mean to imply that Bill Broad would be on the take. I don't think so. But there may be a culture of denial that he has inadvertently become a part of. For example, it is said by the physics community some in the physics community say it's impossible for cell phone radiation to have an effect because it's too weak and it can't damage anything. Well, guess what? It is weak. It doesn't work like ionizing radiation that can break the bonds of the nucleotide at the base of DNA, but it can damage those bonds. And we know that from studies done by the National Toxicology Program, which showed extensive DNA damage in multiple organs in research that they published looking at non-thermal levels of cell phone radiation in animals. And other studies have shown DNA damage as well from cell phone radiation. And yet uh, the physics conservatives would argue it's, it's impossible. Well, they may think it's impossible because they have an old paradigm. But in fact, the Cleveland Clinic now tells men who want to have children to get the phone out of their pocket because they have demonstrated demonstrated damage to sperm. There are some government schools or insurance companies that have had a different response to the data. Certainly. Lloyds of London and Swiss Re, which are secondary insurers that cover big companies, took a big hit when the asbestos industry imploded because of liability. You remember that the asbestos industry had multiple lawsuits that were won against them because they withheld information on the dangers of asbestos. There's no question about it. Uh, they have written white papers for the secondary insurance industry that you can find on the website of ehtrust.org that say that they fear that cell phone and electromagnetic fields will be the next asbestos and they will not ensure health damages from electromagnetic fields. In addition, industries have to report 10K forms to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, where they have to indicate any liabilities they face. And in those annual reports, Verizon and others consistently report that they have a legal vulnerability because of lawsuits 
that are pending on behalf of people with brain cancer, many of whom died in their 30s and 40s, that developed because of cell phone use. So there's clearly that part of the world is responding. And now in Switzerland, and in many countries, which you can find on our website again, they have much stricter standards for radiation exposure than we have in the United States and Canada today. And in France and Israel, they have removed wireless from nurseries and from environments of young children and limited exposures to the public at the same time that we are proceeding as though there's nothing wrong at all. Huawei, the Chinese manufacturer, has produced a baby router that automatically puts itself to sleep. And among the other benefits of that router is the fact that it's going to reduce greenhouse gases and use less energy. So there's a lot going on in other countries that are taking action to reduce exposures and to rethink what what they want to do, uh, particularly with children. My last question is whether you have any encouraging or hopeful insights on our resiliency, whether biologically, if we do reduce our exposures, can we recover uh, from damage, which I know it depends on, you know, early life exposures are maybe different than adult exposures. Right. Right. I would say this. The human body is a wonderful thing. We have lots of ways to repair damage and eating well and exercising and staying connected to people and trying to live in a clean and healthy environment is really important. Uh, Whatever damage may have been done from exposures people have had to electromagnetic fields can often be repaired. Sleeping in the dark is really important. Get a sleep mask if you if you face a street lamp or something that you can't control. But when you're in the dark at night, your body naturally produces melatonin, which is a natural hormone that repairs damage throughout the body. And uh, it's being tested right now as a drug to treat breast cancer, melatonin. So producing melatonin is a good way to repair damage. Getting all blue lights and anything, and screens emit blue light. So getting those things out of your life is also a very important thing to do. There are glasses uh, that I sometimes wear that have a little bit of a filter in them to filter out that, that screen as well. And frankly, digitally detoxing is a good idea. I think there's a broad range of support from this, from Ariana Huffington to many others. We need to take the time to be mindful. We need to take, take the time to connect to the earth. We need to take the time for what the Japanese call forest bathing and connect to the natural world around us in whatever way we can, because that is part of our healing process. So no matter what damage we face, I think we can recover. And that's why I'm continuing to do this work. I think more and more people understand this is a huge problem. There are many unexplained problems of health today, including epidemic of Hashimoto's thyroiditis in growing numbers of women that are certainly a reflection of complex factors in the environment, one of which may well be electromagnetic fields. So I think that there's a lot that can be done um, to restore your health, even if it has been damaged. And certainly for our children, we want to keep them from being damaged in the first place. That's our job. And we have to do a better job of it now. Do children have a unique 
ability to repair? Well, as I said, because their cells are growing faster, like with many things, if you watch what happens when a child has a cut and maybe two days later it's gone, yes, because again, things are growing fast in their bodies. So generally they they can repair very, very well. But so can adults. And, And the process of myelination goes on well into middle age. There are many things that can be repaired. Um, in people, even in the brain, we understand that from recoveries, people who recover from strokes. Thanks for listening. Podcast show notes can be found at my website at nontoxicliving.tips. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.